Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy, as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website, as well as on this podcast. Space debris is getting to be a very hot topic in space commerce. On a recent edition of the Xterra podcast, we talked with Moriba Ja, a privateer, about some of the problems associated with space debris. But what if a satellite could take action autonomously? Eric Ingram, CEO of Scout, which is working on just such a solution. And Eric, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you for having me. Tell us what Scout. Uh, tell us what Scout is and how it's going to help with uh, with space debris. Absolutely. So, uh, as you very well know, space is getting a lot more crowded and will get a lot more crowded over the coming years. And the way we currently track spacecraft using ground-based radars and optical telescopes just simply won't be able to keep up, even though they do a great job today. And to combat that, uh, Scout is working on developing vision systems. Uh, software and services for the next generation of space domain awareness and space operations. So our initial product is called Scout Vision. It is a uh, payload that goes onboard customer spacecraft that uh, allows those spacecraft to be aware of their surroundings and uh, navigate relative to other objects. You can do things like proximity operations and docking maneuvers, but also things like collision avoidance. Additionally, we intend uh, a little bit down the road to have our own spacecraft capable of monitoring space traffic uh, in large swaths of area so that we can monitor things in space from space to the point where we can have continuous coverage of all low Earth orbit. Uh, and additionally, last week we actually announced that we are taking some of our software and uh, putting those out as separate products to help customers add layers of autonomy to their operations. And um, that is going well and allows us to uh, help the space industry and the space commons a lot more reach that um, level of safety and uh, risk that we think is necessary for the industry to flourish. It sounds like, and in the aviation world, and I came out of aviation, it's air traffic control was famously known as playing a game called keep the blips from bumping. And it sounds really like that's what you're working on with Scout. That's essentially it. Um, there is a framework uh, that is in work by the government called space traffic management, which uh, is still looking for a regulatory home, but uh, at least on the civil and commercial side, there will be rules of the road for um, how spacecraft operate and how you need to behave to be a safe user of the space commons. And there will be theoretically enforcement related to that. Uh, and so, you know, until that happens, you know, we want to provide as much data to uh, those in orbit as possible to, again, de-risk things. And then once there is a regulatory framework, you know, find ways that we can um, supplement those capabilities and perhaps uh, be a means of compliance for some of the requirements. You know, when, I, when I've talked about space debris with other folks and they say, if you were to get on an airplane and you're going to fly to Europe from the United States, and you were told, but oh, by the way, 
there's a very, very small possibility that something might go through the airplane and cause it to crash, uh, you'd never get on the airplane. And that's kind of the, what they were talking about with space debris is that there's all this stuff up there that might poke a hole in your spacecraft and there's no way to predict if or when that's going to happen. And, and again, it sounds like this is the kind of problem that you're working on. Yeah, uh, space debris is, is a part of that. Um, a lot of our primary observations are actually for spacecraft themselves. But if you look at the number of spacecraft, like that's gonna go up 40X in the next decade. Mm -hmm. And additionally, uh, I think in 2019, there were something like 400,000 recorded conjunctions or approximate or things that could have been collisions in space. Granted, there's a subset of those that actually get to the risk threshold where people actually need to make uh, move their spacecraft. But again, if the number of spacecraft is going up 40x, the number of conjunctions is going to go up exponentially. So this is a problem that will be a lot more acute uh, in only a few short years. You were recently awarded uh, an AFWorks SBIR to revolutionize space domain awareness. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking with Brent Nichols of SBIR Advisors about that program kind of in detail. But tell us about your experience with SBIR and, and what that was all about. Yeah, so after a lot of work, we were finally awarded our first uh, AFWorks phase one last year, late last year. Uh, and that was focused on uh, the, the process and concept of fusing ground-based space domain awareness data with space-based space domain awareness data. Uh, because as we work towards creating a, a clear site picture, being able to merge those two data sets to provide the maximum amount of information possible is going to be crucial for defense operations and commercial operations alike. And finding a pathway forward to make sure those, uh, those two uh, variations of, of information are able to mesh together well is going to be a crucial step. And we're, we're taking that step early to um, ensure that seamless integration. So was that a phase one award or a phase two award? Are you still just kind of in the, the beginnings of it? Or do you have, uh, are, are you in a, in a more mature stage? So it, is, it was a phase one award. Um, we have done some work into it uh, outside of the award itself. So I'd say there is some progress going towards it. And we're working to convert that to uh, a phase two at the moment, but um, there's been a lot of interest from government customers we talked to. And I think that, that along with several other avenues of products and capabilities we're developing um, are of interest for uh, various defense customers. Talk about your background somewhat, Eric, and tell us how you came to found Scouts. My background is, is varied. Uh, I am a big space nerd and have been since I was a kid. Uh, majored in physics and electrical engineering in grad school or in undergrad and grad school and found whatever space projects I could work on uh, or things that were as close to space projects as possible. So I did an undergrad research on LIDAR systems and in grad school research on antenna development. Um, and I was involved with organizations like Students for the Exploration and Development of Space. Fresh out of uh, grad school, I got a job with a company called Deep Space Industries, which was an asteroid mining company. Had a great time there. Um, met my current co-founder and CTO there, uh, but that's where I realized I was a terrible engineer. So I stopped doing engineering work directly and um, started doing other things. So I worked in the nonprofit sector after, after that, both in and out of the space industry. 
and then um, wound up uh, prior to founding Scout at the FAA Office of Commercial Space Transportation, doing licensing and regulating of the launch and reentry industry. So I was the um, deputy licensing lead for all SpaceX licensing, and I was the licensing lead for SpaceX Dragon licensing, as well as the subject matter expert for ground safety for um, the entire office, and also participated in some uh, rulemaking endeavors. So I got a great set of experiences there and um, understanding of the regulatory ecosystem that I think few in uh, startups uh, fully appreciate, um, but then founded Scout in uh, early 2019. And what led you to found your own company? I mean, obviously you said you, you thought you weren't a very good engineer. And of course, I don't have any basis to, to compare on that because I'm not an engineer of any kind. Um, but, but what led you to say, okay, it's time for me to go out and, and start my own business? So I've been entrepreneurially minded uh, a long time. I remember making like a lawn mowing business when I was 13 uh, and, you know, hustling neighbors for, for cash. Um, and so that's kind of always been in the background of things I wanted to do. Additionally, like my only real skill is being able to talk well. So finding a job that, um, that where that is an essential tool is pretty much just CEO and maybe some other things I can't think of right now. Um, so that's kind of what led me to want to found a company, um, combine that with my, my various experiences in the space industry and realizing gaps and capabilities and needs for, uh, de-risking the space environment, uh, combined with my CTO Sergio's experience a few years prior of having lost one of his own spacecraft due to unknown causes, um, that kind of coalesced into what Scout is today. Who else is on your team? Um, the team is growing, so uh, I hopefully won't forget anyone. Um, so my uh, CTO and co-founder, uh, Sergio Gallucci, has a background in pretty much all spacecraft subsystems from a technical perspective and has been guiding a lot of our technical development. Uh, Vladimir Baranov, who is our COO, uh, came to us from the FinTech world, uh, who is, um, he has lived the, the startup life cycle from founding all the way through acquisition. And he also has a background educationally in software engineering. So he is uh, currently making us a more organized entity as well as leading software development. Uh, additionally, we've uh, recently brought on Trisha, who is our director of marketing and public relations, and uh, we're growing the team with uh, technical capabilities as well as some government relations um, persons as well. So uh, growing pretty rapidly right now. I think we're looking to double the team by the summer um, and uh, you know, keep growing from there if possible. You know, it just occurred to me while you were talking, you thought about a job where one of the primary assets was that you could talk. Um, I found one of those too. It was called broadcasting. <laughs> you know, it, it just is one of those things. But if back the space, to business. If the space career fails, then I'll, yeah, I'll there you go. CBS or something. And um, I don't know, the, the Winter Olympics are coming up. Maybe I can narrate uh, curling or something. That could be interesting. There you go. <laughs> but back to business. Uh, momentous picked Scout Systems to support upcoming proximity operations missions. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, we were fortunate enough to um, been talking to Momentus for a while for our capabilities. And of course, they're, they recently have gone public and um, are working towards some pretty impressive missions themselves. And they were essentially seeking capabilities that we were developing with our Scout Vision system. 
So uh, the uh, stars kind of aligned there, pun intended, um, and we were able to um, work out a deal to, to do a, a pilot mission with them. So we signed a, a contract for two missions with Momentus to fly um, our scout vision systems on their spacecraft to help them with you know, some proximity operations and, and stuff that they need to do with their uh, primary mission. Um, and you know, we're hoping that once we are successful, that leads to um, a long-term uh, arrangement with them and also uh, shows to the market that there's trust in our capabilities. Um, if a publicly traded company is uh, uh, putting their faith in, in our products, that you know, kind of bodes well um, to the market, we hope. We're talking with Eric Ingram, CEO of Scout on the Xterra podcast. Take a moment right now to click on subscribe to be sure you don't miss any of our podcasts, or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Eric, talk a little bit about the advantages of onboard vision and autonomy systems and satellites. Absolutely. Um, space operations now are extremely complicated. Um, having to deal with six degree of freedom motion is uh, complex. And over the coming years, the types of operations that will need to be done for uh, construction in space, for specific maneuvering, for satellite servicing, refueling, repairs, all of that are going to be even more comple complex and complicated than they are today. And um, for a lot of these operations right now, we have human in the loop systems doing these things. So there's a lag time in operations and capabilities and accuracy by having to have those human in the loop things. So what we intend to do and what we're working towards with our scout vision systems is to enable this onboard autonomy and onboard vision to make the spacecraft space <laughs> smart about its surroundings and the operations it's trying to perform. So we have a proprietary computer vision, machine learning, and guidance, navigation, and control software stack that can do onboard processing of all of the decision-making it needs to do to be able to calculate relative position. And for instance, uh, the direction um, an object is pointing and where it's traveling um, that we're looking at to better enable docking and, and those complex operations, including things like collision avoidance, as I mentioned before. Um, it's all the same equations, just a matter of going towards the thing versus going away from the thing. Um, and so that's what we're looking to do. Like spacecraft will need to be smart to operate in tomorrow's space environment. And, you know, we think we are a pretty good option to provide uh, a piece of that um, intelligence. How did we get to where we are? I mean, the first satellite was launched, I guess, Sputnik was in 1959. And here we are some... Uh, 70 years later, and we're worried about, you know, space, which everyone thinks is so vast, all of a sudden we're worried about things running into each other uh, in space. How did we get to that point? Um, I think it's a combination of several things. One, uh, the launch costs have dropped significantly over the last few years, uh, you know, with SpaceX's uh, Falcon 9 and, and the small launchers popping up it's just increasingly cheaper to get things to space. Uh, additionally, you've got the increase in technical capability while also the decrease in size and mass of those capabilities. The kind of computer that I can put on in our payloads today, which is you know smaller than a cell phone, has more compute power 
been, you know, some of the spacecraft currently operating in geo that are the size of a bus. And that alone drives so much more you can do in so many different kinds of missions and uh, business operations. When you also include the fact that things are moving from electromechanical to software-based operations, we're enabling more capabilities with fewer pieces of hardware every day so that more spacecraft can do more things that aren't just their, their original primary mission. You can evolve um, what, what each uh, thing can do just with software alone. And so all of that combines to more businesses that close, more things that make financial sense to do. So that means you have increased number of businesses that can function, so increased things that get launched to space. That with the increased concentration of investment and wealth uh, going to the technology and space industries provides more financial opportunity for businesses to function and operate. Um, and I think all of that combines to what you've seen, which is, you know, I, I don't know what the curve looks like. I'm assuming it's going near exponential to the increase of things being launched to space. And who knows what's going to happen when uh, a Starship is going to be ready to fly because the current constraints to launch something right now are not mass, it's actually volume. Um, mm -hmm. I think rarely does SpaceX actually meet the maximum mass, the payload mass that they're able to fly. Um, so again, that's gonna be, I think, another increase in um, the stuff we have up there. You know, when you think about the number of what we keep hearing about rideshare missions, where six or seven satellites or more will be carried on a single spacecraft, and then you have the Starlink system, and you hear about SpaceX putting another 40 or 50 satellites at a time into, into low Earth orbit. I know as an entrepreneur, you hope that each one of those will have your AI on board. Um, that may not be completely realistic. So let's talk a little bit about compatibility, because I know there are going to be other systems that are developed to try to keep the blips from bumping. Is there going to need to be some kind of a standard or compatibility to make all those things work together? It depends. So, um, you know, standards and compatibility are usually worked out by the markets if the governments don't step in and make that decision for it. Um, but for even those things that don't have Scout Visions on board, our longer term product, I think that we're working towards that benefits everyone is our own constellation of observation spacecraft. And so what we can do with that is track the spacecraft that even don't have, that don't even have Scout Visions on board, right? Because there's thousands of things operating right now that have been operating before Scout Vision existed. So, um, you know, we have a set amount of customers that existed prior to our existence. So um, there's ways to service them, even if there isn't onboard autonomy and things like that. Uh, additionally, like I mentioned before, with now offering a lot of our autonomy um, bits of software as standalone products, that gives more options to customers who might not have our um, payload on board, but might have enough um, capabilities, sensors and movement capability and compute power where it might make sense to add those layers of autonomy and capability um, with, with the software directly. So again, being moving from a, a more software defined ecosystem like all technology is, um, that gives us a wider access to uh, provide benefit to many different customer groups. 
Let's talk about that uh, on-orbit system for just a moment, because I want to kind of dig a little deeper into that. Let's say you you detect that there are two objects that are in danger of collision. Talk us through the process about how you notify the owners of said spacecraft, uh, how, and then how do they wind up avoiding each other if, they, if they're not able to do so autonomously? Absolutely. Um, and I will say that some of the, uh, the user experience isn't quite designed yet. We're still a few years out from this uh, system being live. So some of these might be approximate to what happens a few years from now. But um, if they're already our customer, it is very easy to contact them. Hey, your spacecraft has a potential of collision in 16 hours, whatever it is, here's where we suggest you move it, assuming that we also don't have a payload on board. Uh, we provide them suggestions. Uh, we do not tell them specifically what they need to do, but we give them options about what they should do. Uh, and then they can adjust accordingly. If the other spacecraft or both of them are not our um, customers, we'll still try to get information out because we want to protect the space commons. So we will make attempts to reach those uh, spacecraft owners and see if we can provide enough information where um, they can work to determine best course of action for themselves. Um, Current operations happen with human in the loop decision-making. So right. if the, the spacecraft doesn't have autonomy, the same similar process will take place. In terms of who moves what, um, there's no official rules on that. I imagine eventually it will be uh, similar to maritime operations where uh, the more maneuverable craft is the one that moves. Um, so the bigger, slower one or one without propulsion um, obviously is not the one that is forced to move. Again, those aren't rules yet. So um, it's up to the participating parties, assuming that both are spacecraft and one's not a piece of debris um, to figure out the course of action that makes the most sense. And I think there are many different ways that, that has worked out in the past. So um, having standardized sets of rules, I think is gonna be really important to how those things happen in actuality. You were part of a, the Techstars Space Accelerator. What was that experience like for you? Techstars was amazing. Um, we applied to Techstars every year that we could from like when we first founded, <laughs> um, we applied. And so we got in on our third attempt, um, which was very exciting. Uh, it was a, a great experience uh, that just crammed so much knowledge into us in such a short amount of time. It was astounding. It was essentially like having two full-time jobs, uh, running the company and doing tech stars, but like in a way that was extremely beneficial. I mean, they have this event called Mentor Madness where you meet, I think something like 200 people over the course of two weeks uh, who are relevant to your business or at least the space industry. Um, and you, you know, just, it's just intense amounts of business development and networking that is uh, very beneficial. And um, I can say that, you know, Techstars, the Techstars Space Accelerator really positioned us to be in the great place that we are as a company and has really uh, led to a lot of the traction that we've experienced over the last uh, nine months as a company. And also at the ninth annual Startup of the Year Summit, you were named Startup of the Year. Uh, congratulations. Uh, tell us a little bit about what led to that. Thank you. That was uh, completely unexpected. Um, I went uh, to the event. It was a pitch competition, but I was going to the event mostly for networking because there was a large amount of investors uh, there. So always good to grow that network. Um, 
initially they had thousands of companies apply to this, I, I believe, um, might be in the, the high hundreds, but a lot of companies apply to it. Uh, they select the top 100 to invite, invite to the event itself, itself uh, as semifinalists. We all initially uh, gave a three-minute pitch to groups of judges. They picked the top 15 companies from that and then whittled it down to the top five. And then the top five gave uh, a five-minute pitch to uh, a group of judges as well as to um, a large uh, crowd of attendees um, and we were fortunate enough to be selected out of that group uh, with, you know, four other amazing companies. I was honestly shocked. I was not prepared to, to win, um, but that was a, a pretty awesome experience. When you think about space debris and, and you know that this is going to be a problem that's going to continue to uh, get worse is about the only way to put it. So then what are your future plans in space commerce as it relates to to not only um, collision avoidance, but space debris. So it's a need that will grow. Um, and the good news is we will be very well positioned to be a, a primary player in that ecosystem. Um, it's not gotten to the precipice at the moment where the pain is acute enough that it is necessary for everyone. But there will be a pivot point um, where that might happen. Hopefully we can get out ahead of it and we're able to, you know, wrangle uh, the issue before it becomes a systemic problem. Um, but, you know, we're still a few years away from that pivot point. And our timeline for our technology and capability development puts us right in line with being able to meet those customers' needs uh, right around the time the market fully recognizes the value in these capabilities. Um, there are some early adopters now, um, and that's typical for any new capability and technology. And uh, a few years from now, I think you'll see a much larger adaption, adoption of um, capabilities like we're developing at Scout and um, others that may have cropped up um, around that time. And one thing more, Eric, look out if you would, over the next 10 to 15 years, kind of gaze into your entrepreneurial crystal ball and tell us what you see on the horizon for space commerce in general. Oh, space commerce in general. One, uh, Scout will be the primary provider of space domain awareness data, and we will have as much knowledge about what's going on in low Earth orbit as we do on highways here on Earth um, with you know tracking of, of everything going on. So we'll be pretty well positioned. Um, the space ecosystem will have flourished by then. I think you'll see uh, the, the first generation of um, commercial space stations activated probably a few years into use uh, with some you know, customers actually utilizing them. I think you'll see in-space manufacturing increasing. I think you'll see uh, by that time, hopefully Starship will be active um, and you'll see some pretty large things get uh, lofted up um, that might enable businesses and, and things that I haven't even dreamt up yet. Um, and so I think the biggest thing is you, there are going to be destinations and there are going to be um, a lot more commercial operations that um, veer into you know, the longer term stuff that NASA is probably the ones that would have primarily taken that mission prior. So maybe the start of lunar habitats, maybe. Um, but primarily, I think you'll see a, 
massively increased commercialization of low earth orbit. Well, Eric, we are out of time. And I will say that if that whole space thing doesn't work out, uh, you've got a future as a broadcaster. But thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. That is going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Check out our YouTube channel and be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at xterrajsc.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at xterrajsc. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.